My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our storyteller uh, for the day. Uh, we do this thing called storytelling at our church, and it's been um, just over a year that we've been doing this, and it's sort of uh, picked up and become sort of taking on a life of its own. And uh, most people will check the box that this is their favorite thing in the whole service. And so I really appreciate all of you uh, taking a chance on the crowd and sharing a bit of your story with us. Uh, we do it because there's so much life to be gained when we are connected to each other. And it's good to sit next to people you don't know in worship, but so much better when you're connected to the persons in this room. And so we're going to keep doing that. And we even have two coordinators now who are going to give much more time and attention to this uh, work. And I'm really happy about that. Today, our storyteller is Tanya. So Tanya, come on up and tell us your story. Tanya, everyone. Good morning. Because I'm a teacher, I'm going to start with an equation. So a lost tooth plus prayer equals faith. I'm going to tell you a story using that equation this morning. Now, first, we have to acknowledge that losing a tooth when you're young, like in the first picture there, is a very good thing like a rite of passage to becoming a big kid. I especially know this because I'm a first grade teacher and I spend my days with six and seven year olds and they are extremely excited when their tooth is loose. And it's an extra special moment if they lose their tooth at school because they get to go to the nurse's office to get a tooth necklace. It's like a locket where they store their tooth inside. Um, and I, I've even had a child who lost their tooth at home, and they brought it to school just so they could get that necklace. <laughs> so it's, an, it's very normal for my kids to come complaining to me and saying that how much their teeth are hurting. And I respond by saying, congratulations, your tooth is almost out. So... Um, I have a picture of my boys, Christian and Miles, when they were much younger. Christian is now 16, and Miles is 13. Um, so I keep a mom journal, and I started this journal um, when I was pregnant with Miles, just so that I could remember some of the fun um, stories that have happened to them through the years. And so I wanted to share one of those stories from my mom journal. Um, as I tell this story, you will see how the equation fits in. Christian had a wiggly bottom tooth, and it was loose for a while. He was looking forward to losing a tooth because he hadn't lost one in years. Well, the other night last week, it fell out while he was flossing, and it fell right into the sink and down the drain. When I came to him, I saw that he was crying, and I asked if his tooth came out. He said, yes, and then it went down the drain. He was so sad and in tears. My husband, Nigel, had pulled the drain out and looked, and then I did too, but it was gone. I tried consoling Christian and told him to try not to be so upset about the tooth, but he was still in tears. Miles was clearly affected, too, because he went off to lie down in bed. 
I could tell that he felt so sad for Christian. Well, the night passed, and the next day came. The sink was used over and over for washing and brushing. The next night, the boys took showers. And afterwards, Miles looked in the sink, and he saw the tooth. It was laying right next to the drain, so he was careful to pick it up. He gave it to Christian, and he was so happy, and he called me. I found out the details, and I knew it was a miracle. But the more I thought of it, the more I'm amazed I was. I thought about it some more and wondered, why did God do this? Oops, I forgot the most important part of the story. After finding the tooth, Miles said, I prayed that we would find it. And Christian said, me too. I told the boys that the lesson I get from this miracle is that we should pray to God about everything. Nothing is too small or too big to pray for. God is our daddy in heaven, and he knows our hearts, and he cares deeply for us. Then I looked up this verse, Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I believe that God saw the hearts of my praying boys and made a way for this tooth to return from the pipes to us so that their faith and mine might grow. God knew that this would be a very special gift for us. So now you see how a lost tooth plus prayer equals faith. When I think back on this story, I'm convicted because I think of how many times I neglect to pray. Maybe I think it's something too small or too big, or sometimes I just forget to pray. But this story helps remind me to pray in all things. Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So that is my story this morning. Uh, This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Malachi. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from Malachi chapters 1 and 2 in the New American Standard Bible. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? The word of the Lord. Thank you so much for that story, Tanya. It reminds me that these storytelling times are also auditions for preaching. 
if you hear a storyteller that particularly seems suited to preach, you let me know, and uh, I'll see if I can bribe them or something. Uh, we are starting a new series today. It's going to be short because these minor prophet books are uh, just, uh, just a little snippet into the life uh, of the prophet and their interaction with the Israelites. And uh, we're going to do Malachi today and next week. And the theme of the book of Malachi is our hearts. And what we learn in the book of Malachi is that God doesn't care about many things. In fact, he only cares about one thing, and that's the heart. And so we're going to look into our own hearts and understand why God cares about our hearts so much. Um, it's been a bit weird um, with things that are happening with Susie's parents. Some of you may not know that they were in a uh, serious car accident about three weeks ago. And uh, um, it's, it's awkward for me and Susie to uh, be in this place of uh, need. And this is our first time going through a crisis of this magnitude. And Susie's mom actually is back uh, in Chicago as of yesterday. And uh, she's going to be recovering. Uh, she broke her neck and her hip and some ribs. And, but she's recovering remarkably well. Uh, Susie's father remains in a coma. Uh, but as of yesterday, he's been showing signs of life as well. Um, I think he tried to sort of open his eyes or something like that. Uh, but the doctors are pretty careful to not be too negative or to be too positive. They want to sort of uh, track with what's happening and not what might be. And so that's been a good point of discipline for them as it relates to us because we're looking for signs, you know. We want to know uh, the future. But uh, it's been a reminder also, uh, especially for me, I think, and uh, Susie, of course, too. Uh, but for me, just the way that we are embedded in this community. And I sort of uh, drift off regularly and wonder what would the, these last three weeks have been like had we not been connected to a community? If we were sort of just isolated, didn't have a regular body that we belonged to, that was connected to us, if nobody else felt this with us, and sort of all I got were uh, Facebook and Instagram responses or something, and we're not really the type to put that kind of stuff out there, uh, what would our lives have been like, and I sort of shudder to think about that, because as of today, I am officially sold out on this whole idea of community, and uh, there's been flowers, there's been attentiveness and inquiry, and all that is great, and there's been a lot of food, and uh, food is an interesting thing, because uh, there's a lot of food at our house, and it's easy to have food, even if nobody brought anything. But there's something that's transmitted through the food that really feels life-giving to us. It's easy for us to order something, buy something, or for Susie to cook for a whole week, and we just eat. I mean, it's just eating. It's just sustenance. But when it comes from the community, from the body to which we belong, I feel a sense of connection, not just to... Um, the, um, 
the people or to even the people's feelings, but to something beyond ourselves. It sort of feels like the universe, dare I say, God, is somehow reminding us, letting us know that we're not alone through this, that we're never alone. And it's, remi- it's not creating, but it's reminding us that uh, we uh, matter, that we are visible, and there are things besides us just tracking. And it sort of gets us, pulls us out of survival mode. And so it becomes this larger existential experience. And it teaches, it connects more, to, more, more than just our bodies, but to our souls. In other words, I feel the heartbeat of God through food. It may sound a little bit uh, grand, but that's really what I've experienced. I think there's a lot of power in it for people to show up at our doors and drop a food. And most people don't even knock. They just leave the food because they don't want to bother us. And they just text me later like, hey, there's some food. And one time, we, got, we weren't able to get to the food enough, and the crows had gotten to it first. So Susie and I thought, maybe we should put a cooler out in the front. And it just feels a little bit weird, like uh, we're sort of, uh, you know, it's awkward to do that, right? But now we're just sort of getting pragmatic. Um, it really has been a ministry, and it's reminding me how important uh, the gift of the heart is for us to feel connected to the heart. And so I want to start with this. The title of today's sermon is The Heart because that's a theme of the series. And then we'll go uh, a little bit deeper next week. These verses that uh, Tanya read for us and is printed for, for you, they're meant to give you a general sense of the theme of Malachi. And the theme is also captured in these other verses in the uh, Old Testament. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. This is terrifying and reassuring at the same time for me. You know, so I don't have to have as much performance anxiety because God's just looking at my heart. Then I think, oh God, don't look at my heart. But this is what God's doing. He's always connected to our hearts. And everything that's visible and presented before him is a means through which God has access to the heart. This is what God tracks. You know, we are a measuring creature. We measure everything. Everything. And yet God says, none of you can measure the heart the way I measure the heart. Because 1 Samuel 16, 7, this is when God was trying to choose a king. And he sent his prophet to go find the king. And the prophet just kept messing up. Because as a human being, he just kept measuring the thing that human beings measure. And then it became a lesson for the prophet himself. And so this is the lesson. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance of things, but the Lord looks at the heart. Always at the heart. And try as we might, 
the best we can do is to guess at the heart. But God can actually see the heart. You know, you get into a lot of trouble if you start trying to read somebody's heart. You know, we're complicated. We have moments and histories. And so it's really hard to understand what's really all going on. And, and the truth of the matter is the Bible actually says, the, above all else, the heart is deceitful. It's self-deceitful. We can't even understand our own hearts, let alone understand somebody else's. We have somewhat of access to our own hearts, and yet we can't do it. God, though, sees the heart. And I get this. I'm not God or anything, but I'm made in his image, and this is also my instinct, and I think this is your instinct too. We are always looking for the heart of the matter. You know, we see through the words we listen for the tone, maybe because the tone then will give us a more accurate depiction of the heart. You know, we sort of do the math and measure things, but really we're adding things up to see if we can access the heart. This is what we do. I get it. I look for realness. I look for sincerity. I look for truthfulness. I look for motives and the motives behind the motives. What do they really mean? What's really going on? Ah, I get it. We're always playing detective in this way. You know how the story goes. It's not about the kiss. It's about true love's first kiss. We want the love to be true. We want it to come from the heart. Is that kiss real? Right, because that's the magic. That's what can wake up the princess. Right, this is human nature. We all carry around with us a kind of uh, ever on, ever operational truth meter, an inbuilt lie detector. There's a so called sniff test or the gut check. We care also about the heart. It's not only the Lord whose eyes move to and fro throughout the earth. We scan also for the heart. Uh, I have mentioned this resource before, but I really like this. Tim Sanders, uh, ex-Yahoo guru, he wrote this business book called The Likeability Factor. And he says the same thing. He says the key to life is likeability, right? Because the most important decisions in our life we don't make, other people make on our behalf. And if they're making decisions that impact us, what causes them to make those decisions in our favor? And he says, at the end of the day, it's likability. You're likable. My likability, that's what matters. Well, how do we get likable? He says, well, you have to be friendly first. And then you have to be relevant. These are like traffic lights, he says. And then he says, you have to be empathetic. And then he says, but all of that doesn't matter if you don't pass the final test, if you want to rescue the princess, this is the test. You have to be real. And so likability, you know, it kind of sounds like you can sort of fake people out. You know, I just got to be likable. I got to, you know, um, play the game well. You know, I got to say their name a lot. I got to agree with them. I have to smile. There's all these tricks we can employ, but actually none of it really works because we all have our lie detector test on. And so we're listening, watching, feeling out to see if somebody is real. Malachi um, 
really kind of helps us to know how God tests our realness. And I think we do the same thing. This is uh, verse 13 and 14. Uh, It says this, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning. Now, pause. All that sounds pretty real, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. Would that fool you? Somebody comes to you, they cover your altar, whatever your altar is, with their tears, weeping and groaning. You buy into it. Oh my gosh, I'll take one. Here's my money. Because he no longer, God doesn't buy it. He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So there you are trying to be likable and God rejects it. Yet you say, why? How could you? I'm crying. I'm weeping, groaning. For what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then it goes on to explain even further how these husbands have dealt treacherously, what that means uh, to their wives. And we know in context that uh, they were flippantly divorcing their wives and remarrying and then divorcing and remarrying and divorcing. They were doing this flippantly. uh, And because of the societal position women were in, this was like passing a death sentence covered in shame and rejection with no financial recourse to care for themselves, often forced to resort to uh, other ways uh, of uh, finding uh, a way to survive. And God says, human beings, you all have just one heart, your heart, the one self, the one reservoir from which you relate to everything. You can't, on the one hand, deal with your wife this way, who is left vulnerable. And God has a really special place in his heart for uh, the orphans and the widows and the strangers of the land. He really cares about the least, the last, and the lost those who can't care for themselves, those who don't have a voice, those who have less, those without resources and connections. God really cares about that. And he says, the way you deal with the least of these is the way your heart is. The measure of a person's heart, God says, is not what you do or how you do with people who have the ability to give back to you. But to those who cannot repay, what good is it, he says, If you lend to a friend who will pay you back, that's nothing. All you're doing is strengthening the relationship. Will you lend to someone who can't pay you back? Will you turn the other cheek? Will you walk the extra mile? Will you turn over your coat as a sacrifice? Because it's your one coat. These are the things that begin to show your true colors. You cannot claim to or even act like you love God if you don't love other people, especially those who are unlovable. So we want to take a look at the heart, and what we're going to see is that God's really relational, and he's not religious at all, which is irony. And it's always personal, and it's never about prosperity. John chapter 4, to continue on with the introduction, says this. 
4, verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And uh, I have mixed feelings about this verse because I often feel like I love God all the time. I just have problems with people. And then God says, actually, it's easier to love people because they're visible. They're concrete. You have opportunity to practice your love. And it's much harder, actually, to love God because he's unseen and invisible and intangible. And so the fact that you claim to love me but not your fellow human beings, God says that makes no sense at all. If from your heart you hate your brother, you cannot with the same heart love God. You cannot claim to be able to do the harder thing, and yet you cannot do the easier thing. Because it is harder to love God. It doesn't make sense if you're a Christian here for you to say you love God and yet hate your fellow man. You can't have hate in your heart and say I have love in my heart for God. It doesn't make sense. We claim to have religion and yet we are failing at relationships. God is never, ever after religion after all. Religion never was God's idea. That's man's creation. It's our construct. We created religion, and we can practice it, but unless we understand the relational nature of what God wants, we cannot please God. And in fact, the Bible goes so far as to extend this idea beyond human relations. Proverbs 12.10, I love this because I love my dog. I spent three hours on my dog yesterday. I cut his hair. I cut his hair every month. And cutting his hair is a lot of work. It takes me two hours. Because he's always matted. He's a cockapoo and his hairs are, his hair, hairs are fine and they stick together. And so it takes me a long time. And that's just him. I have to clean up. I have to clean up myself. I, have to clean. I mean, it's really, and then I have to bathe him. And part of Bathing a dog, grooming a dog, you don't know this if you haven't groomed your own dog, is you have to squeeze their anal gland. It's really gross. But I love my dog. But the Bible affirms this. Proverbs 12.10, the righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. You get to the content of a man's heart by seeing how well he grooms his dog. Basically, I'm amazing. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not everything. (laughs) And again, I have mixed motives. I want to save money and all that. How is your heart? Is it relational towards God or is it religious? Do you feel like you can just sort of keep God good? You know, do your thing, check the boxes. But then you have these other relational areas you haven't worked out. And yet God says from the same heart you love both. You relate to both. I'm not after religion. I'm not after your sacrifice. The altar, supposed altar you come to where you weep and groan and cover with your tears, that that doesn't mean anything. Anything. 
just a quick, uh, I want to give you a chart. Religion, it's about control. It's about me being untouched. I want to stay invulnerable. I want to stay outside of the point of impact. I want to be able to manipulate. I want to stay duplicitous. I want to be sort of mercenary and live lies in my life. That's religion. That's really at the heart of why we uh, construct religion. And relationship, on the other hand, is sort of wild. And it's vulnerable. And there's risk involved. And it's trust-based, which is scary. And there's a kind of purity to relationships. And it's based on truthfulness. It's based on the heart. And so we have this inversely proportional relationship between relationship and religion. And so as relationship increases, religion decreases. And this is God's word to us. That God wants relationship, not religion. I used to think that evangelicals were so cheesy, talking about having a personal relationship with God. Oh my gosh, how corny can religious people get? And yet, it was not the evangelicals' idea at all. It is just all over the Bible. From day one to now, all God wants is our hearts. Uh, Kate uh, Bowler or Bowler, uh, she wrote this book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And uh, this is a great quote. She says this, The prosperity gospel has a very simple way of explaining why life as it is must be inherently just. As it is told, God established a set of principles that keep the world in order. Just as there are natural laws of gravity and thermodynamics, there are spiritual laws that steer the courses of lives and ensure that good things really do happen to good people. Spiritual laws offer an elegant solution to the problem of unfairness. They create a Newtonian universe in which the chaos of the world seems to redouble to simple cause and effect. The stories of people's lives can be plotted by whether or not they follow the rules. This, my friends, is the definition of religion. Religion exists as a way to help us to control the prosperity level in our lives. If I do good, God owes me. If I fight my body and come here on Daylight Savings Day to the first service, there's some kind of debt I'm putting God in. And if I put God in debt, then guess who's calling the shots now? I'm going to cash in my chips when and if I choose at my convenience is at the heart of religion. Religion, in other words, is syncretistic. It melts everything down to be used for one purpose, self-prosperity. That's religion. And yet the Bible says it's personal religion, and it's not prosperity. 2.17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? I love the succinctness of verse 17 here. You know, in a word, we use words to love God. And we have come, we have come so far into self-deception, we actually believe our own words now. We think if we come to church and sing, say the words, I love God, we actually love God. We think if we come to church and we feel a moment of loving God, we love God. We think if we do some act in the name of God, that we're actually loving God. We've come to believe the externalities of our own religion. 
We're believing our own press. We're watching our own jump shot, as they say. Can you believe it? We are so self-deceived that when we don't get our way, the first question is, why? How can bad things happen to good people? And God's like, whoa, good people? Let's go back to the premise. You sure you're good? What do you mean bad things happening to good people? Show me one good person. Because as far as I can see, there's not one good, not one, not anywhere. I died for everybody, not 99% of the people. You're not the one. I mean, you're not part of the 99 that's not lost. You are all the one that needs to be found. And so there's a kind of assumption we've come to make about who we are and how we are. Because we have trusted our own words. And God says, I'm tired of your words. And you say, what do you mean you're tired of our words? We love you. And God says, you say you love me means nothing. And so religion has caused us to believe in the power of our own words. That we can somehow present ourselves as a sum total of our words and our stated beliefs and projected image. Religion makes us self-justified in our own eyes. We are constantly building and maintaining this case for ourselves. And here's really the kicker is it's not just religious people because everybody is religious. We are all building and maintaining a case for ourselves using whatever religion we subscribe to. It can be personal success. It can be personal health or well-being. It can be whatever it is, your competence or your appearance or your wealth, your networks, your net worth. We all are religious Proverbs 21.2 yet says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But what does God do? But God, through it all, is weighing the heart. He's keeping his eyes on us, the real us, the true you. We are seeking prosperity without personal involvement. We don't want our hearts to be touched we want to stay intact as we are. That's the very nature of religion. Focus on the externalities, what I present. This is the game we play. We are our own magicians. We try to divert God's attention over here so we can stay false over there. Do you want to be known at your heart level? Do you want God have access, and yet he does. Uh, Mark 8.36 says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? We're always trying to gain the world. Mark 10.21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Luke 10.40, Lord don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Boy, that sums up my life right there. But few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Guess what this one thing is? It's your heart.
we can apply this in the same way that we've been talking about it. Number one, it's, it's always personal. God is always working in our lives because it's not about our words. It's not about our practice, but it's about our hearts. That's what he's tracking. Hebrews 12, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. God's working in you to change your heart. It's personal. Second, always start with the person. As you practice true religion, your relationship with God, it's 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. If you really want to be religious, I want to give you one simple way for you to practice your religion. Not your prosperity, not your case. Just love the person next to you. That's religion. If you want to boil it down, that's what it comes down to. Love one another. Love your neighbor because God is love. Because you have been loved. Because all there is is love. We conclude with this thought found in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't know if you want to hear this from your pastor, but every day I struggle with feeling unqualified for this job. I really struggle with it. It's an honest confession. I often cringe at the thought that I am a pastor. I really do. But you know what keeps me in the pulpit? It's God's work in my life. I really feel that. The only hope I have for myself is that God's working in me. That God's personally working in my heart. God's not asking me to lead a religious organization. He's asking me to track his work in my life. And anybody can qualify for that job. And so thank you for letting me be your pastor. But your hope, my hope, is on God's work in me God's work in your lives. That's our only hope. So put all your eggs in that basket. None of our religion matters is a huge relief. Let it go. And let God work. Would you bow your heads with me? God, the most precious thing in our lives is your work in us. Where would we be? How would we lift our heads? On what would we stand if it wasn't for you working in us, the work of God? So we thank you for that. And that's our hope. Not that we are qualified, but that you qualify us. Not that we have hope in ourselves, but you give it to us. You are our hope. Thank you. We love you because you have first loved us in Jesus' name. Amen.